you probably already know that there are hundreds of stocks across the US and Canada that pay monthly income. A lot of these companies trade on big markets like the New York Stock Exchange, the NASDAQ and the TSX, and they're usually grounded in real estate, energy, resources or business financing. Well, on the first day of every month, I send out an email with a list of three to five companies that you can buy within your brokerage account that pay monthly income. They've all got the following features. First, they have a dividend yield of above 6%. Second, they have a one to two year history of maintaining or increasing their dividend payments. Third, you can invest in them with less than $100. And fourth, they're trading at a price that's lower than their historical highs. This is a research email that can help investors find income-producing investments that can be made from the comfort of their laptop. If you're looking for stocks that have a relatively high yield, with a history of stable or increasing dividend payments that are currently being paid out monthly, then this is a resource that'll help you identify them. I don't give opinions, I just lay out the facts. You can subscribe to this email by going to alexisasadi.net slash email. You'll start receiving it on the first day of every month. Again, it's alexisasadi.net slash email. Hey, it's Alexis Asadi, and welcome to episode number 20 of Income Investing, a show that explores different investments that produce income and or dividends. We are available on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and most other platforms, so please be sure to subscribe if you have not done so already. As you could assume from the name, the Income Investing podcast takes a deep dive through various revenue-producing investments. Our first segment was on real estate investment trusts, or REITs. We're currently on mortgage lending, and in a couple of weeks, we'll get into mortgage funds. But we're going to cover a ton of other investments too, like peer-to-peer loans, crowdfunding, rental properties, bonds, income stocks, and much, much more. Now, we like investing for income for various reasons. First, you can use the income to supplement or even replace your employment or business earnings. Second, a lot of these investments can also appreciate in value, so you can earn passive income from your assets and also sell them for a capital gain. Third, there's plenty of diversity. You can invest in equities, you can buy debts, and you can do business in practically every market on the planet. Fourth, a lot of these income investments are quite affordable. Many can be made with just a few hundred dollars. And fifth, you can reinvest the income into more revenue-producing investments, thus compounding your returns. The list of advantages can really go on and on. So the topic of today's discussion is how you can make a mortgage loan yourself. Let's say that you found a real estate entrepreneur who's looking for debt financing, and you want to provide him with a loan. So how do you go about doing that? I'm going to break it down into different steps for simplicity right after a quick recap of where we're at so far. Now, we've spent the last 10 weeks building up a foundation for the mortgage investing world. We saw that mortgages are legal tools that are used to secure a loan against a piece of real estate. They give protection to lenders by doing two things. A, if the secured property is sold, the mortgage requires the debt to be paid back before the seller earns any of the proceeds. And B, the lender can foreclose on or seize the real estate if the terms of the loan are violated. 
In most cases, loan contracts are made via documents called loan agreements or promissory notes. So the borrower signs a promissory note for the loan, and the lender secures that debt by placing a mortgage on the borrower's real estate. In most cases, the lender will charge interest and origination fees and late payment penalties. This is why they are popular assets for both retail and institutional investors, like investment funds. They can be reliable sources of monthly revenue that are backed up by property. Of course, there are risks involved with mortgage lending. We saw what happened when taken to an extreme in the early 2000s. The 2008 global economic meltdown was ultimately triggered by irresponsible bank mortgage loans. But on an individual level, some of the main risks include default risk, which is when the borrower misses interest payments, and origination risk, which is when the deal collapses before a loan is even made, causing the lender to lose time and even money. And of course, there's liquidity risk, which refers to the fact that loans can be difficult for retail investors to sell. Thankfully, there are also plenty of tools that can be used to manage those risks. The most fundamental one is to lend at a reasonable loan-to-value ratio, or LTV. That's a percentage that describes how much debt is on a property. For example, a house that's worth $100,000 with a $50,000 mortgage would have an LTV of 50%. As well, the lender should be aware of his priority. If there are other mortgages on the property, then they will be paid back in chronological order after it is sold. It's therefore the safest to be in the first position whenever you're a lender. We also explored selling loans in the debt market, which is one of the ways to manage liquidity risk. That briefly introduced us to bonds, but we didn't go too far with that asset because I'm going to cover it extensively in a later segment. We dedicated the 16th episode of Income Investing to a relatively complex subject, interest rates, central banks, and their impact on all income-producing assets, including mortgage loans. After that, we talked about who borrows money from private lenders and why real estate developers are common clients. And from there, we assessed why an entrepreneur might purposely borrow money instead of to raise equity capital from investors. And last week, we discussed how a lender can get additional collateral besides a mortgage by using instruments like personal guarantees and GSAs, or general security agreements. And that brings us to today, as we get closer to the end of our direct mortgage lending segment. All right, so as always, let's jump into a question from one of our listeners. This week, we have one from Emma, who is in Omaha, Nebraska. Remember, if you have a question or if there's a topic that you want me to go through, you can just let me know at alexisasadi.net slash podcast. So Emma told me that she likes the prospect of mortgage lending, but she doesn't have the capital to make a mortgage loan. She's got around $5,000. Emma also doesn't know where she could find a worthwhile borrower. So she wanted to know if there are other ways to get into these kinds of deals. So Emma, this is a very timely question. One of the many ways that you can get exposure to mortgages is through mortgage funds, which usually require far less than $5,000. These are investment funds that either make mortgage loans directly or they buy and sell mortgage agreements like promissory notes. And the good news is we're going to look at them very closely in the next segment. So without spilling too many of the beans, you're going to see that you can make a lot of these investments from the comfort of your laptop, and it's also going to let you avoid the process of trying to find borrowers by yourself. 
if it's okay with you, Emma, I'm going to leave it there. I have so much more to say about these investments in the coming weeks, but I don't want to put the cart ahead of the horse. Okay, so before we get into anything else, let me just quickly tell you that the sponsor for this episode is Pacific Income, a company that provides financing to entrepreneurs and real estate investors and business owners. We fund up to $250,000 to people and businesses that are looking to grow. Get the capital that you need to build your empire. You can visit us online at packincome.com. That's P-A-C, income.com. So we've been building up to this point for two and a half months. The question is, what are the physical steps to take if you want to make a mortgage loan by yourself? Maybe you know a local entrepreneur or a business that needs capital. You see an opportunity to make an income-producing investment that's backed up by real estate. But how do you actually go about doing it? I've broken it down here into eight different steps. The good news is that they're pretty simple to follow. Also, if you want to use this information for one of your own loans, you can download the episode transcript from alexasadinet slash blog. It was posted on July 26, 2018. So we're going to start off by assuming that you and the borrower already have a handshake agreement. You've had a preliminary discussion about giving him a loan, and it's now time to formalize the arrangement. So where do you go from here? So step one, the first thing you'll want to do is to have a solid understanding of what you expect the deal to look like. You should be able to answer the following questions based on the discussions between you and the prospective borrower. We'll start with the details of the loan. How much am I going to lend? What interest rate will I charge? When will the loan mature? Will there be an origination fee? And will I charge late penalties? So next, the details about the borrower. Is it a person or a business entity like a corporation? How does the borrower plan to pay me back? Is the exit strategy reasonable? And am I confident that there's a low risk of default? See episode 13 of Income Investing. Then the details about the collateral. Will I take security in a first, second, or third mortgage? I guess even a fourth mortgage. What is the supposed value of the real estate? What and how much other debt is there on that real estate? And does anyone besides the borrower, like a spouse, co-own the property? Is the property insured for fires and floods, etc.? Will I request a life insurance policy in my favor? And will there be any personal or corporate guarantors? As well, you should tell the borrower upfront that the value of the promissory notes will probably be higher than how much cash you're actually going to give him. That's because you're going to deduct your legal and origination fees from the funds advanced to him. So let's say that the borrower wants a $50,000 loan and you're going to charge a $1,000 origination fee. The promissory note will probably state that he owes you $53,000. $2,000 will go to your lawyer, and $1,000 will go to your fee, but he will have to pay interest on and repay $53,000, even though he only received $50,000 of cash. It's important to clarify this at the beginning to avoid confusion later on. This is the norm for non-bank lending. Step 2. Before you get too far, have the prospective borrower sign an offer letter. Like we talked about in episode 12, this will help ensure that you don't spend time and money on the deal 
without knowing that you're going to get reimbursed for it if it doesn't end up going through. The offer letter should essentially say, here's what I understand about you and your property. I'm interested in giving you a loan for this much principal, at this much interest, and for this long. I need you to get me the following documents within two weeks. I'll discuss those in step four. I'm going to fund the loan once I've received those documents, assuming that nothing that you send me is contrary to my current understanding about the deal. By signing this offer, you agree to reimburse me for all costs that I incur in connection with this loan, including my legal fees. You also agree that I've now earned the origination fee. Obviously, it's a bit more formal and expansive than that, but you get the picture. You're basically incorporating everything from step one into the letter. You are openly and honestly laying out your expectations. And you're also giving yourself a way out if you discover any nasty surprises about the borrower or his property. If you'd like a copy of the offer letter that I usually send, you can just let me know at alexisasadi.net slash podcast. Just drop me a message and I will email it over to you. Step number three, you should ask the borrower to get a lawyer because he's going to need one to complete the transaction. Depending on the jurisdiction, a lawyer might be required to give advice before the borrower signs some of the loan and mortgage documents. But irrespective of the law, I always require the borrower and any guarantors to have a lawyer. I want each party to get independent legal advice so that we're all protected. In my offer letters, I always ask them to give me the contact information for their lawyer as one of the required documents. It'll make the communication process easier. Step four, get the documents that you need from the borrower. All of these should be in your offer letter. First, you might want him to provide an appraisal of the property so that you can confirm what it's worth. You can also get estimations by requesting an opinion from a realtor or a property tax assessment but those are usually less reliable. Second, if there are debts on the property, you'll probably want to see a statement of account. This can be as simple as requesting the borrower's most recent mortgage statement. Third, you should get the current property tax account. That will tell you if the borrower owes any property taxes as of today. You'll recall from earlier episodes that the government can register a lien of the highest priority if there are any taxes owed. So all of this information will help you determine what the property's current LTV is and what it will be worth after you register a mortgage on it. Fourth, you may also want to ask for the property's insurance documents. As well, you might want post-dated checks from the borrower for his monthly payments. You should do as much of this as possible before you go on to the next step. Step five, hire your own lawyer, preferably one who has done real estate loans before. She's going to do a few things for you. First, she's going to draw up the loan and the collateral documents. Second, she's going to conduct due diligence on the property and also on the borrower. Third, she's going to register the mortgage on the property. And fourth, she's going to transfer your money to the borrower's lawyer. And that borrower's lawyer is going to release the funds to the borrower. Now, attorneys seem to be a little bit cheaper in the U.S. than they are in Canada probably because there are so many lawyers and so many real estate transactions there. But the cost will usually vary based on how much work the lawyer has to do. If either you or the borrower have a hard time getting your ducks in order, it's going to get more expensive. Hence why you don't want to rush to this stage. The most I've ever paid a lawyer for a mortgage loan was $6,000. But that was many years ago. 
It was the first mortgage deal I ever did, and I didn't know what a reasonable rate was. I was basically ripped off. Ultimately, those costs were passed on to the borrower, so it didn't affect me personally, but that's way, way, way too much to pay for a mortgage. Since then, the bills have usually been between $1,500 and $3,000. The higher end of that range comes when I use one of those massive white shoe law firms with hundreds of attorneys. But if you need a lawyer for one simple real estate loan, then it probably wouldn't be worth going to a firm like that. So I think you can budget for around $2,000 on the upper end of the spectrum. Now, if you have a relationship with that firm or if they trust you, then they probably won't ask you to pay anything up front. Basically, when it comes time to fund the loan, you write a check to the lawyer for the loan amount and she deducts it from whatever gets advanced to the borrower. But if you're a new client, then they may ask you to pay all or part of the anticipated fee up front. This is called a retainer. If this is the case, you might want to ask the borrower to pay it for you because he's ultimately going to have to reimburse you for it either way. Now, I just funded a deal with a guy who was really surprised at how high the legal expenses for the deal were. His comment was something like, my lawyer only charged me $250, so why is yours almost 10 times the price? But keep in mind that the lender's lawyer does almost all of the work. He draws up the documents, he does due diligence, he pulls title searches, and he communicates with the borrower's attorney. On the other hand, the borrower's lawyer will probably spend an hour on the deal, if that. From what I've seen, they basically watch their client sign a bunch of papers, and that's it. Step 5. Give your lawyer a copy of the executed offer letter and all of the documents that you've been provided by the borrower. Your lawyer will conduct her own due diligence. For example, she's going to run a title search to confirm who the legal owner of the property is, and also what debts are on it. Now, a lot of the time, this is where the hiccups begin. For example, the borrower may have told you that he owns the property, but after the title search, you see that it's actually owned jointly with the spouse. So that'll probably mean that the spouse will have to be a co-signer or a guarantor, which can blow up the deal if she doesn't agree to it. That's why it's really important to mention this in the offer letter. Your lawyer will produce a range of documents that are tailored for your deal. If you're lending to a person, there will probably be a promissory note, a mortgage agreement, and a certificate of independent legal advice. If it's to a corporation, there might be a resolution of approval from its board of directors. And if there are guarantors, there may also be personal or corporate guarantee documents and additional certificates of independent legal advice for each guarantor. Now, this is where I usually step out and leave pretty much the rest to my lawyer. She's going to communicate with the borrower's counsel on my behalf. Otherwise, things can get messy if you're talking to the borrower and your lawyer is talking to his lawyer. It can get even worse if there are guarantors involved because they will have their own attorneys too, so everyone's going to be talking to each other and it just starts to get messy. I find that it's better to just have one single point of contact. So if I get asked about the progress of the deal, I simply tell the borrower that it's now in my lawyer's hands. It's impossible to predict how quickly it's going to complete. A lot of it depends on how soon the borrower and his counsel can get the paperwork done on their end. In my experience, it's usually a one to two week process. Step six, review your lawyer's work. At the very least, check that the terms in the promissory note align with your offer letter. You remember the lawyer that I just mentioned who overcharged me for my first deal? 
Well, he also wrote the promissory note for $160,000 instead of $106,000. He got the zero and the six mixed up. If I didn't catch his mistake, I would have been on the hook for lending an extra $54,000. Step seven. Once you're good with the lawyer's work, you can then write a check to her trust account. She will then advance the funds to the borrower's lawyer and deduct any of her outstanding fees. This, of course, assumes that the borrower's lawyer has returned all of the executed documents and that the mortgage has now been registered on the property. At this stage, I also usually require my lawyer to instruct the borrower's lawyer to pay any outstanding property taxes and insurance premiums before releasing funds to his client. This helps protect the integrity of my collateral. Step 8. Enjoy the income from the borrower's interest payments. So as you can see, financing a mortgage loan by yourself doesn't have to be difficult. You just need to be organized. Personally, I use a checklist to help streamline the process. It's basically a log of what I need from both the borrower and my own lawyer. So I'm going to spend next week's episode talking to you about the company that I started called Pacific Income. One of its primary focuses is mortgage lending. I'm going to explain what we had to do to form the business, how it operates, and how we make money. I'll also cover how the entrepreneurs that we financed have benefited. I think it'll be useful if you want to see how to go from an occasional passive investor to being an all-out lender. Otherwise, thank you as always for joining me today. Remember to check out my online course, The Roadmap to Financial Freedom, which you can get at alexazasadi.net slash podcast. Also remember, if you have any questions or if you want me to clarify anything from today's episode, you can also let me know there. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>